Matthew chapter 7 this morning, if you would, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter number 7. As I joked earlier, I know how the ball game went yesterday, and everybody's very friendly and, and very kind to me. I did tell some people that if it would have went differently, the miracle would have happened. I probably would have worn a different outfit. But y'all have been very nice to me, and I thank you for it. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 7, and honestly, we have been going through the parables of Christ for the last four months, I guess it's been, and was really wanting to do a particular parable, but the Lord would not let me go of this particular passage of Scripture. I hope it's a blessing to you. And part of it's very familiar, probably the first verse. In fact, you go into people's homes and they have verses or pictures of verses on the walls. And this is possibly a verse that's on the wall of your house. But um, I think there's a great principle here of something that can be a blessing to you. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse number 7, this is uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount with Christ, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's getting close to an end of it. An end of his message. And it says in Matthew 7, verse number 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, Will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Father, I pray you might just add your blessing to the reading and teaching of your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have because of Christ to gather in this room. Lord, just to study your word. Lord, I pray you might, through your word, draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray you might forgive me of my sins and where I fail you. Lord, there be nothing between my soul and you. Be with those working with the children today, Lord. I pray you bless them be with them. And Lord, where people are here today and they may be searching, I pray, Lord, that you would give them exactly what you have for them to have. That you would meet their need according to your will. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This morning, as the title of our message, I want us to look at this topic, and if you got an insert, you can see where our points are. And, but our title is this, Getting What I Need From God. Getting What I Need From God. The verse here in verse 7 is going to be our main text, and we, we see this, it says, Ask, seek, and knock. But I think if we all think about it, we all would admit there are things that we need from God. We all need things from God, regardless of what it is. In fact, in Scripture, what does it say in Philippians, I believe, excuse me, James, where it says, every good gift and every perfect gift coming from above, so all things truly come from God. And I think we all admit we need to get some things from God, but the problem is we just don't know how to get it. We all have requests. We all have things on our minds. We all have things on our hearts, maybe even some things we pray about. But how do we get through to God? 
We feel like we pray about things and pray about things and our prayers never make it through the ceiling tiles. It doesn't feel like we're ever breaking through. And we struggle to get through. We know that there are answers, but we don't know how to approach it. We don't know how to go about it. And it's a struggle to us. And it's a depressing reality for a Christian or any individual to know they need answers but not know how to get through to God. It's sad for a husband to lead his family and not know how to get through to God. It's sad for a mother to lead her children and not know how to get to God. It's sad for a young person today in this day and age with all the evil influences and the things that pull on them and draw them to sin and to know they need answers, to know they need help, but not know how to get through to the God that can help them when the things that they face. But I think there's something that we need to understand when we feel like we can't get through to God, when we feel like heaven is silent, that we're struggling, and our prayers are just words. We need to understand, if you're a believer today, that you're not praying to a God that's against you. You're not here today worshiping a God that's against you, but God is for us. What does it say in Romans? If God be for us, who can be against us? By the way, on a side note, I think a lot of times in our prayers and our plans... We say we hope that God is on our side, which, honestly, if the truth be, we need to find out what side God is on and get on His. We don't need to try to convince God to get on ours. And when we think about the topic of God is for us, when we pray and desire things from God, it reminds me of David. And if you turn there over to the book of Psalms, Psalm 56, if there was a man that understood what it was about his enemies and facing enemies and and needing to get a hold of God, it was David. David, when he was battling and when he was facing the Philistines and facing Saul and the things in his life, David said this about his enemies in Psalm 56. In verse number 3, David says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. When I'm afraid of my enemies, when I'm afraid of those things that I'm facing, when I'm afraid if my prayers are going to be answered, I'm going to trust in you. And I think we need to understand the same thing. Whatever those enemies are, those obstacles that we are facing, when we are afraid and we feel like we can't hear from God and it's just silence, it's just words that we're muttering, can I tell you that we need to, just like David about his enemies, need to understand that we will trust in God because he is for us. David goes on to exemplify that trust that he has. He mentions in Psalm 56 verse 3, where later on down in verse number 9, he says this, When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. God is for me. And I love the fact that God is for me. And you know what? If God never answers another prayer in your life, you can rest and joy and praise Him and trust Him because the fact that he is for you. Can I tell you, if God never answers another prayer in my life, he has saved me, he has sustained me, he has helped me, he has guided me, he has helped me overcome things in my life. And you know what? I need to understand because of God's track record, I can look and say I trust him because I know he is for me. But the truth of the matter is this. Just because I know God is for me doesn't mean that I'm getting through to Him. 
Let me say it again. Just because we know God is for me doesn't mean that I'm getting through to Him. And can I tell you, at times there are things in our in my life, there are things in your life that keep us from getting through to God. Just as I mentioned earlier in my prayer, that song of invitation that there be nothing between my soul and the Savior that you know that we allow things to be in our lives that keep us from getting through to God. There are things, there is sin in our life, there are obstacles in our life, there is doubt in our life, and those things keep us from getting through to the one who wants to bless us, to the one who wants to protect us, to the one who wants to provide for us, from the one who wants to give us peace of mind, peace of heart. You need to realize that God has a desire for you every day that you live. Every day that you live as a believer, God has a desire for your testimony to say this. Regardless of my situation, regardless of my problem, regardless of my people, as my favorite hymn is, we can have the testimony that says, It is well with my soul. But often most Christians don't get through to God, and the reason is, is because we're not approaching God the right way. We're not approaching God the right way. We have sin in our lives. We have things in our life. We have to remember that I can't come to God just like he's my buddy. I love the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But I also have to remember that he is holy. And he says, To be holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. I'm not coming to my friend. I'm not coming to my neighbor. But I'm going to the one that created everything. I'm going in the presence of a sinless, flawless, holy God. I have to approach him the right way. And part of that's dealing with our heart. Back in Matthew chapter 7, which is a great chapter. There's so many things in Matthew 7. And I know I'm giving you a long introduction, and, and people around here joke with me about my introductions. But can I tell you, Matthew chapter 7, before you even get to verse number 7 about asking, seeking, and knocking, can I tell you that Matthew chapter 7 deals beginning with, with judging. As we joke, there, there's a verse that's misinterpreted. It's... Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And we like to jump on that and say, see, nobody ever can say anything to me about me at all. And we always like to claim that, not when we're right, by the way. We always want to claim that verse and misquote it, if I may, that verse when we're wrong and trying to justify or compare ourselves. But see, Matthew 7 deals with judging, but there is righteous judging and there's unlawful judging. But there is something I need to understand that I deal with and struggle with in this area of judging and judging unlawfully. It's not my place, and it's never your place, to assume the place of God. Let me say that again. It is never your place or my place to assume the place of God. I think about this, and I know people do different things in different styles, but... Can I tell you as a pastor, and I've seen many preachers do this, I've seen many evangelists do this, it is not my job to do the work of the Holy Spirit. It is my job to present what God gives me, and it's God's uh, job, it is the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction, to bring, to bring encouragement, to bring whatever it is. We've all been a part of a service where they sing 19 verses of a hymn and say, oh, we're going to do one more verse because I believe God is speaking to somebody's heart. Can I tell you something? I don't know if God's speaking to your heart. I can read your face. I can look at it. I can tell if you're sleepy or not. But I let God do the work of the Holy Spirit. 
and not me. I have to realize something. I'm not God. I can't be God. And I never will be God. So I need to stop trying to be God. Because if we're honest, he's doing just a fine job of being God himself. And what this is saying, judge not lest you, judge not that you be not judged in, in Matthew 7, 1. It's saying don't judge people by a standard that, you're, that you don't want to be held to yourself. Don't judge people to a standard that you don't want to be held to yourself. I don't know if any of the rest of you have ever done this. I've done it with my children. Tell them, don't do this. Don't be running around hollering and screaming at the house. Don't raise your voice in the house. Don't do these things in the house. Only do a few minutes later, I'm the one hollering. I'm the one saying something I shouldn't. And I turn around and look at my kids, and they're like, yeah, Dad, uh, you just told us not to do that. But don't judge people by a standard you're not willing to be held to. By the way, don't judge people on their unfaithfulness to church. And you yourself aren't faithful to God in the area of sharing Christ, in the area of praying, in the area of trusting Him, in the area of sharing your testimony, in the area of raising your children in the nurture admonition of the Lord. Man, we want to judge people on their faithfulness to God, but we think we're better because our faithfulness in that area is better than their faithfulness in that area. And you read these verses here, and we like to read them. It says in verse number 2 of Matthew 7, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? The word mote there is talking about a speck, like a speck of dust. It's like saying... Hey, I see that speck of dust, that little thing in your life, but I'm ignoring the two-by-four that's in my own life. We always like to judge or like to say this, excuse me, my spiritual gift is pointing out other people's problems. Well, can I tell you, there's nothing wrong with pointing out someone else's problems as long as you're doing it with the right heart and the right spirit, and the right spirit is this, to forgive and restore. By the way, you don't have to help restore someone that has done you wrong. You can help restore someone that's not done you wrong, but because you love them and because you want to help them, you want to restore. And what this is saying here about the moat and the beam, what it's saying is, is that we're awfully good at seeing the little things in other people's lives that we miss the major thing in our own life. I'm really good at looking at the little ways that you fail, the little ways that you mess up. I look at the little things in my children, the little things in my wife, that, that aren't exactly the way they should be. But man, I miss the glaring, horrible things in my life that I've not dealt with. A good example of this is David over in uh, uh, Psalm. You remember how David and his sin with Bathsheba. And he committed adultery with her and she became expecting. And what did David do? He went forward and even had Uriah come home try to cover up her sin. And when Uriah had some integrity, which David did not, he had Uriah killed. He's a murderer. And if you remember that old prophet Nathan, you say, well, how do you know it's an old? He said he had a bony little finger, pointed it in his face. But before then, Nathan comes to Dave, and it's possibly a year later. And he gives him basically a story or a parable. And he says, David, there's a man in the kingdom that has, his family has one little lamb, one little perfect lamb. And, and they treat it as a pet, treat it as part of family. And then there's this other family that's very wealthy, very well-to-do, and has lots and lots of sheep. And they're very well-to-do. 
Well, the family that's well-to-do and the man that's in charge of the house there, he has, he has family come or, or guests come from a distance, and he says, instead of taking of my own, which I have plenty, I'm going to go over to this family that just has one, and I'm going to take, take their lamb, and I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to sacrifice and use it as a meal to provide there. And if you remember correctly, David gets outraged. He says, how dare this person take this one lamb, take this animal, and and consume it on his own lust, if you will, and, and, and be so greedy and be so selfish and, and do that to the other family. He says, that man should be, that man deserves to have 40 times the guilt or the sin or the or punishment from that. And David looks at him and, excuse me, Nathan looks at him and says, David, thou art the man. All Bathsheba had was Uriah. All Uriah had was Bathsheba. And he said, David, you're all upset about somebody taking a lamb from another family when you've taken somebody's wife and you've taken somebody's life. You're not seeing the major things in your life that you know were there and that you should deal with. But man, you know why? Because we justify our guilt. We justify our faults. We give reason excuses why. And can I tell you, if you judge, judge correctly. By the way, it goes on to say, if uh, if you can't judge others with your sin in your life, then you don't need to be judging. If you have sin in your life, something in your life, you don't need to be going around critiquing and judging other people. And I almost skipped this verse, verse number 6. But verse number 6, and I, like I said, I know the introduction's longer. But verse number 6 is hard. And it says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. This is a hard verse. He's transitioning between judging and, and asking of God, but he says something interesting here. He's, he's saying, Don't waste the good stuff of your life on those people who just don't care. It's not saying here you shouldn't reach out to people. It's not saying here you shouldn't be a testimony to people. But it's saying to those people that are scorners, those people that are against God, those people that just don't care and want nothing to do with it, he's saying don't waste it on that. Proverbs deals with the principle of casting out the scorner and the simple will be made wise. Can I tell you today, don't give what's valuable in your life. Don't give the intellects God's given you, the resources God's given you, the job God's given you, the friends God's given you. Don't give the impact that you have and influence you have on on people, don't give it to people that just don't care. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but here's the problem. We invest and we pour out in these people that are just so hard and so callous. And when we come across people that God brings in our lives that need our intellect, that need our time, that need our resources, that need our grace, we don't give it because we have nothing left. We're out of grace. We're out of resource. We're out of that. And so we come to verse number 7. And number one, I want us to see today, and you probably can guess what the three words are. But number one, I want us to see the word ask. Ask. The word ask here means to plead with God. Not ask flippantly, but a desire to plead with God. Pleading for an answer, desiring greatly an answer. Look what it says in verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Down in verse 8. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. That means to plead. That means that you've got to come as a surrendered person with a surrendered heart to God. 
God makes it very clear in Scripture. Don't ask Him to meet your desperate need when you're turning your ear from those that have desperate needs. God makes it clear. Don't ask Him to meet your desperate, urgent need when you're turning an ear from the desperate need of others. Over in Proverbs 28, verse number 9, I encourage you, I know with time, we're not going to read all these verses, but 20, Proverbs 28, 9 is a verse you ought to really circle in your Bible. Proverbs 28, 9 says this, the, uh, Solomon says this, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Did you hear that last word? That their prayer would be an abomination. That means if I turn my ear away from somebody in need and I have the ability to meet the need, God has already set it up for me to be able to hear it. But if I turn my ear away from somebody in need, that my prayer will be an abomination to God. Abomination is a pretty strong word. I think we could take time, which we won't today, to really look at sins and those things that God calls an abomination. It's pretty strong language. But he's saying here to those that are believers, if you turn your ear away from somebody in need and you have the ability to meet that need, and even sometimes giving of what you don't have, that God says, man, even your prayer, I don't want to hear it. It's an abomination to me. Can I tell you, there's Christian people that are so hungry for financial help, but so stingy to help others financially in their need. There are people who are so hungry to have finances and possessions and things, but they're so stingy to help everyone else. You know why? I can't help somebody else because I'm trying to get more in my life. I'm trying to make more money. I'm trying to have more things. If I'm giving away, if I'm giving to meet someone else's needs, man, I'm really fighting against what I'm praying for. No, we're stingy. We're selfish. And can I tell you, there's going to come a day when you're really going to need God. And I hope that you'll be able to look and see where God used you to go out of your way. To go out of your time. To give what you didn't have to help meet someone else's need. And you gave of your time, of your money, of your resources. And this is not all about money. Don't focus on that part of it. But I hope that you give to somebody and to help somebody, not just so they'll mention you in a good testimony time. Because if you're waiting for someone to stand up and say, Brother so-and-so did this, sister so-and-so did this, if you want the praise of men, there is your blessing. Can I tell you, I don't want you to bless me whenever I do something or follow God. I want, when I obey God, God to bless me. But if you want to hear someone say your name, someone recognize you, enjoy your blessing because that's as deep as it's going to get. Hopefully you give. Why? Because you love Jesus. You love Jesus. And that's only going to come from a surrendered person. Because surrendered people are this. They're others-minded, not me-minded. They're others-minded, not me-minded. Let me ask you, how much of your prayer is selfish you say brother phil i'm asking and i'm asking god but i'm not receiving let me ask you this are you surrendered in every area of your life that means surrender doesn't mean that you're faithful in everything but it does mean this 
Are you asking, saying, God, if you don't want to answer the prayer the way I feel it needs to be prayed, that's fine. And God, if you don't want to give me this and this is what I'm desired, that's fine. I'm surrendering to your will. When you ask God to come through for you, you might sometimes need to reflect back to Malachi and say this, have I robbed God? Can I tell you, Jesus didn't preach on money. Jesus didn't preach on giving sacrificially because he needs it. You know the phrase, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills from Tennessee. We take that a step further. We say he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the, he owns the, kills, the hills that the cattle are on. He owns the taters that are in the hills, which means he owns everything. But Jesus didn't preach on giving sacrificially because he needs it. He preached on giving and sacrificing because he knows how much we love money and things. Good example, that's the rich young ruler. And can I tell you, Jesus has a way to put his finger on the one thing that keeps you from trusting him completely. The one thing you won't surrender to him. Jesus has a way to put his finger on the one thing that keeps us from trusting him completely. We all like to quote 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. That means this. The love of money. That means this. That means there's not much you won't do to get it. But it also means this for the love of money. It also means there's not much you won't do to keep it. Well, I like to quote the little phrase whenever we have a bad day. Oh, Lord giveth, Lord taketh away. But we need to remember that quote came from the lips of a man that had everything in one day and lost everything in one day. He lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his family. We all like to quote Job whenever we want to sound spiritual. But let me ask you, can you quote Job? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. When you're on your bottom in life, you didn't lose a bad deal, a bad transaction. You didn't have a bad day, but I mean, you lost everything. And Job was desperate for God. Let me ask you, are you desperate for God? Or is your prayer like, well, if you answer it, great. If you don't, life goes on. Let's be honest. Most of our prayer is, God, you answer it, wonderful. If you don't answer, it's okay. I'm still going to wake up tomorrow. Sun's still going to shine. I'm still going to go on. But when we ask, do we plead? When was the last time that you pleaded with God for something? You were desperate for God for something. You know why I don't do that? Confession good for the soul, mighty heart on the reputation. You know why I, you know why you don't plead with God about things? Because we don't really need him that bad. We live our lives in a way that we say we don't really need you that bad. Like I said earlier, we're going to be fine. Everything's going to go on. We're going to get uh, new this or new that or replace this or replace that. Because to plead with God requires a spiritual purpose, not a selfish purpose. Spiritual purpose. Not a selfish purpose. If you would, flip over to James chapter 4. <coughs> James chapter number 4. Remember, James is written to Christians. It's written to believers. James 4 and verse number 2 and 3. Look what it says. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. So we don't have because we don't ask. We don't ask. There's that word again. We don't plead. And why it says here, when you do ask, verse 3, and receive not, it says you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. Let me ask you a question today. You're single today? Why do you want a husband? 
Why do you want a wife? Why do you want a spouse? Why do you want a different job? Why do you want to make more money? You say, Brother Phil, did God hear me in those prayers? Yes, he heard you, but he knows you're going to be selfish about it. He knows that if he gives you those things, you're going to be selfish. You're going to consume it upon your own lust, as it says in verse 3. Why do you want your kids to behave better? So they don't embarrass you? Or so you have the opportunity to, in love and grace, show Christ to them and they may see Christ in you? Whatever it is you're asking God for, is it for selfish reasons or is it for spiritual? Is it because you want to glorify Him, you want to worship Him, or because it's prideful, it's all about you? It's unspiritual. Think of this. Tell the Holy Spirit why you want that car, why you want that house, why you want that money. Is it because you can consume it upon your own lust? You say, Brother Phil, I'm here today. I got a man, I got a prayer list. Man, I could I got a prayer list a mile long. I want to challenge you with something with that prayer list. All those things you're praying about. I want you to look at every item on that list and tell God why you want it. Everything you're asking God for, everything you're pleading with God for, every item on that list, I want you to be able to look at it and then tell God, God, this is why I want it. I want a promotion at work. Why? So you can influence more people for Christ. That would be for a spiritual purpose. Can I throw this out? If you don't believe God will do it, He won't. If you don't believe God will do it, He won't. He won't do it. Can I encourage you with this? You're praying about that raise? Praise God before you get the raise. Brother Phil, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why should I praise him before the raise? I don't know if I'm going to get it. Praise him before you get the good health report. You went in for a screening. You went in for a test. Praise God before you get the results. Praise God before you get the car. Praise God before you get the house. That doesn't make sense to us because we want to, we see it, we believe it, and then we're thankful. David in Psalm 52, 9, praise God before God ever answered his prayer. You know why we don't praise God before he does things? Because we don't have the right faith. A quote that I've, I know I've said a lot of times, but it means a lot to me. Where there is no faith in the future, there will be no power in the present. If you have no faith in God to provide, to come through in the future, you will have no power in this present life. But you will have worry, you will have doubt, you will have anxiety. Choose faith, don't choose anxiety. Choose faith, don't choose doubt. Where there's no faith in the future, there will be no power in the present. And when we come to this passage here, why does Jesus say in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 7 ask, ask, ask? Here's why. This is philology. Okay? I can't back this up, but this is just my opinion. I believe Jesus was telling his disciples to ask for the faith of what he just spent the last two chapters telling them to do. Remember, this is Sermon on the Mount. He's closing the sermon. And remember that he was speaking to his disciples. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of people sitting on the hillside listening to him. But he was speaking to his disciples. This was who he was talking to. I believe Jesus was telling his disciples to ask for the faith to do what he just spent the last two chapters telling them to do. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you prayed the prayer of Matthew 7, 7 for God to help you live Matthew chapter 5 and 6? 
I got a prayer list, Brother Phil. Let me ask you on your prayer list, is it as you find in Matthew five and, and Matthew six, is is your is on your prayer list, Lord, help me to be meek. Help me to be a peacemaker. Help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Help me to be merciful. Help me to be pure in heart. Help me to love my enemies. Help me, Lord, to let your light so shine in me. Are those things on your prayer list? God, if I don't get any of these things, Lord, help me to live the Christ life. And as I said earlier, if God never answers another prayer in my life, you know why I ought to keep praising him? And why I ought to keep having faith in him? Because he is worthy. So number one, we see ask. Ask, meaning to plead. Number two, look at the next word, seek. Look what he says in verse seven. Seek, and ye shall find. Seek, and ye shall find. Verse eight says, and he that seeketh, findeth. The word seek here means to pursue. To pursue. Let me ask you, in your prayer life, in your regular life, what are you pursuing? What are you pursuing in your life? Hey, watch this. Ask is to beg God for it. Seek is to run after it. Some of us never get past asking. I'm just going to wait on God. And we are to wait on God. But there's times that God says, got to get up. The just shall live by faith. That's an action verb. That means you got to ask for it, but you got to get up and live that way too. Ask is to beg God for it. Seek is to run after it. You may be here saying, God, help me be a better husband. God, help me be a better wife, better spouse. God, help me to do that. God, help me be a better child. God, help me better be an employee, better boss. Lord, help me to be a better soul winner. Help me to be a better testimony. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing about it? 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul finishes his, excuse me, Paul writes this last letter to Timothy. And what does he say in 2 Timothy 1.6? Stir up the gift of God in you. That's an action. Stir it up. What are you actively seeking? Are you seeking Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not advancing your own kingdom, but advancing his kingdom. Are you seeking his righteousness? That says and. I ought to do this for his kingdom and I'm going to do it in his righteousness. Mark chapter 10 verses 51 and 52. We have a blind man that's seeking his sight from Jesus. And, and you know, remember what uh, Jesus looks at him? This man's blind. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want of me? I mean, what kind of question is that? He's Jesus. He's all knowing. This guy's blind. It's pretty obvious what his problem is. And the guy's saying, I know what my problem is. Jesus says, I know what my, I know what your problem is. Jesus wanted him to acknowledge what his problem was, but he also wanted to seek him and seek what he could do to get his sight back. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. Colossians 3, 1, we went over it in Sunday school a while back. If ye then be risen with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, that's speaking to believers. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. We love Hebrews eleven six, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder, that's the answer to your prayer, of them that diligently, what? Seek him. And I know I've been talking to believers for a long time. Or pretty much the whole message. But if you're here today and you're without the Lord Jesus Christ, can I tell you, you don't need peace. You don't need answers to any prayer. You don't need more money. You don't need a good health report. You need Christ. 
And what you need to seek is Christ. Because can I tell you something? He's already been seeking you. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Seek the Lord. And I know people may not like this. They may not understand this. But can I tell you something? If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior and He's seeking you and He's drawing you through the Holy Spirit and getting you to realize that your need is not peace, your need is not more money, but your real need is Christ, can I tell you something? And you're here and you're not saved, you cannot get saved anytime you want to. You say, well, I can get saved later. No, you can't. The only way that you'll ever put your faith and trust in Christ, the only reason I put my faith and trust in Christ as an eight-year-old child and everyone else here that put their faith and trust in Christ at whatever age it was is because he was seeking us and he convicted us of our sin and our need for a Savior. Some people, if not everyone, excuse me, everyone that doesn't get saved, they don't get saved because they don't see the need of being saved. Seek him while he may be found. You may never be convicted of your need for Christ to be saved ever again. You may not. We'll take time to read it, but Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13, talk about how we ought to seek the Lord. And when we seek him with a clean heart, let me ask you, do you earnestly run after the things for which you're praying? And not only do you run after the things you're praying, but you're doing it with a clean heart, not a hypocritical heart, not in fakeness or fluff to impress. You say, Brother Phil, pray for my marriage. Brother Phil, pray for my children. Brother Phil, pray for my health. Brother Phil, pray for my job. I'm praying to get right with God. Let me ask you, are, how are you actively pursuing those things? How are you actively pursuing those things? Let me ask you, are you desperate enough to do whatever it takes to break through to God? For Him to do something. That loved one. You're praying for them to be saved. Are you begging and pleading for God to save them? But let me ask you this. Are you, what are you doing to help God answer that prayer, possibly even through you? You want them to get right with God. Praying about it is great. Pursuing it, seeking it is key as well. My question before we go on to our last point is this. Do your prayers to God match your pursuit of God? Do your prayers to God match your pursuit of God? You know what that might mean? You might mean you have to turn TV off a little bit. You might stay off Facebook a little bit more. You have to be off the internet. I tell you, I've been doing some different things in my life and not watching as much TV in the evening when I just want to sit there and sometimes praying about things and reading things and studying things. You know, my prayers to God need to match my pursuit of God. So number one, we see ask, which is to plead with God. Number two, we see seek, which means pursuing God. And then number three, the third word, is knock. Look what it says in the verse. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Verse 8 says, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. You know why? We need to pray with the right heart. We need to plead. We need to seek because there's doors we want God to open for us. And the word knock here means a desire to fellowship or to be in the presence of. Knock means a desire to fellowship or to be in the presence of. You know why God wants us to knock? Because we have a desire to have a close fellowship with him. Let me ask you, how's your fellowship with God this week? I ain't talking about over your whole life. I'm talking about this week. How has your fellowship been with God? We asking God, open doors, open doors. Why again do you want to open it? 
Are you doing it so you can have fellowship with him? You know, I can't help but think that this command to knock has got to be connected in some way to the other place in Scripture where Jesus is speaking to his followers about knocking. Revelation 3.20. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. And what does he say? Very familiar words. Remember the lukewarm church? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. By the way, a lot of people take this verse as an invitation for salvation or a relationship with Christ, and it's not. Because he's speaking to the church, and he's speaking as a church, not as a church building, but a church as a body of believers. And Jesus is actually already speaking here to, excuse me, he's speaking here to those who already are his followers. But he's asking them, do you want a fellowship with me? Do you want to share a meal? Do you want me to open that door? Do you want me to come in? You know, you think about it. The thief, as it mentions in John 10, 10, what thief doeth not what to, but still to kill and destroy. I'm pretty sure that this afternoon or this evening, someone that wants to break into your house and steal something, they're not going to stand on the door and knock. Hey, anybody home? Just want to check, see anybody home? Let me check the doorbell real quick. Is now a good time to come in? I can come back later. No, they're going to sneak. They're going to try to sneak in unawares. They're going to try to steal what's precious from you. And when no one else is knowing, they're not going to announce their presence. But Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he's also telling us to do the same thing. Knock on the door of heaven. Where he says, What I am the door. I want to have fellowship with you. And to me, it's a mind-blowing thought. That God who is holy, God who has sacrificed everything for sinful man and sees me as a child of God, but yet I'm still a sinful child of God, a disobedient child of God so many times, he still desires to fellowship with me. But a lot of times we don't care about fellowshipping with him. The parallel passage in Luke 11 talks about the same command to ask to seek to knock. So what we find in these references to knocking in the Bible is that close fellowship with God. If I had to describe your Christian life, would you say you have close fellowship with God? And that's the essence of what Jesus is teaching here. If we want to have God open the door, is it because we desire him to fellowship with him? Hey, do you want God to answer that prayer for whatever that thing is you want because you want to be closer to God or just because you want that thing from God? If it's because we want that fellowship, we need to understand something. He's asking us to initiate that fellowship by knocking. He wants us to initiate the fellowship. Now, it's certainly true that God initiated that fellowship in the first place by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us to make it possible to have a relationship with him so we can have fellowship. So God initiated the whole relationship by saving us. But once we have accepted the gift of salvation through faith in Christ, can I tell you something? The depth of the closeness of our relationship with God depends on us, not on God. You are as close to God as you are willing to be. I didn't say as you desire to be, because we a lot of us have desires, but will goes past desires. Desire is a want. Will means I have a desire and I'm going to do an action. You have the relationship with God that you're willing to have. Man, I wish I had a better relationship with God. Who do you think moved? Who do you think doesn't want it? 
the closeness of my fellowship with God depends on me, not on God. God is there all the time waiting for us to knock, to open the door in our prayer so he can open that door and allow us to be in his presence. But I will tell you something, God will never force his way on us. He won't do it. You see, because genuine prayer is really not about getting a car. It's really not about getting a good health report. It's really not about money. It's really all about fellowship with God and asking for those things that will advance his kingdom. It's about seeking God himself and knocking in order to pursue that intimate relationship with him. In closing, genuine prayer focuses on God, not on our personal needs and desires. Genuine prayer focuses on God, not on our own personal needs and desires. Can I tell you, God values two things in prayer especially. God values persistence and passion. Now, I just said those two things, persistence and passion. Did that describe your prayer life? Is your prayer life persistent? Is your prayer life passionate? Because when your prayer life is persistent and passionate, we show that we care more about him than just the things we can get from him. And when we do that with the right heart and we do it with the right attitude, God delights in giving us things. And not only that, God delights giving us in what we need. And a lot of times, as Ephesians 3.20 says, he will do above and beyond what we ask or think. Getting what I need from God. Because can I tell you, getting what you need from God is actually just getting God. It's not getting the money. It's not getting the raise. It's not getting those things. Getting what you need from God is actually just getting God. Ask, seek, and knock.